My name is Steve Scafidi. Uh, I'm uh, a poet and a, and a cabinet maker, and I've worked in the same place. I'm 51 since I was 19. And we have these tools that they're called hole saws, and they're attached to a drill. And you drill, uh, you can drill a hole through a board with such a thing. And I never use it for that. And there are a couple guys, you know, we do build cabinets and we do, but we have these and I never use it for that. I use it for this. <laughs> Is that nice? It's like, it's, I, most mornings I come in, it's the first thing I'll do. I can't annoy everybody all the time. I don't do it all the time, but they love it too. It's like three o'clock when your blood sugar's weird, you know? <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> this is kind of what I have in mind to talk about today because I, I'm going to, yeah. Do you have more uh, handouts? Yeah, I have one more. Here you are. Thank you. So um, that's what I was wanted to talk about today is I'm not sure, you know, I, we're all here in a way to learn how to write, it seems. But I th I'm not going to do that so much. I think I'm going to talk about how to survive and how to persist. Mm -hmm. Because I think we all know something about those times. And they're coming for all of us, you know, and they're in short periods and long periods. But uh, of a quiet that's uh, not helpful. Of a quiet that's like, all right, go. You know, and how do you get back uh, into things? And, and so <laughs> that sound is, is partly my, my such a thing of like, okay. Let's begin again. Let's go. Um, but it's also, I want to talk about a sense of, I'm going to talk about poetry, but we can talk about writing. Um, that there's a lyric spectrum, I find, as a writer and as a reader. A spectrum that goes from a sense of nonsense or a, a, a place of difficulty where what I write, I don't understand. And I don't like that I don't, or that I love that I don't. And also, I encounter that when I read. And frankly, I encounter it when I look at a, a leaf, I don't understand it. When I look at most things in the world, is nonsense to me. So I'm here to praise ev the, the, the spectrum. I'm here to praise nonsense. And not, uh, not, it's not a pejorative. Like often, all of us as writers have faced, well, that's nonsense. The, the, the truth of my experience is nonsense? Well, we, of course we've been told that. Because we've written it down. And we've set it apart. And we've tried to uh, remember it. And maybe we've tried to make music from it as well. So um, that's what we're going to do. Is I want, I'm here to talk about nonsense and the importance of it, of us writing nonsense. You know, I know a person I work with, and almost all of the world is nonsense to her, meaning don't, it's not worth looking at. And it, it is, it's murderous to, to think that way about the world, it seems. And so I want to be the opposite in a way, and especially as a writer, and of what's going on in my own imagination which is, you know, a mess. It's a glorious one, but it's a mess, and I'm thankful for that. And so we're going to talk about poems that, that are, are of that, and, um, and how, in a way, to cultivate a kind of mercy, I think, for your own imagination and its, and its chaos and its so-called nonsense, what's um, uh, unsolvable sometimes in there. And in the, in the other end, that sense where, uh, yes, let me say what I must say. You know, the other end of the spectrum, as a writer, Damn it, I need to say this, I'm saying it. And it's the hardest thing I'll ever do. And maybe we know that, these experiences. Um, and, and the great value of both ends here. And so my aim is to kind of um, encourage us to travel and to be fluent 
at both ends of the spectrum as writers, as a way to um, save ourselves, as, as a way to kind of uh, keep ourselves fresh and, and renewed and looking at things um, with, uh, with a, a revitalized uh, sense of being here in inhabiting our language that way. So anyway, so the first thing I thought I would do is I'm going to read a poem um, that the, the first thing that usually saves me uh, as a writer and, and keeps me going is to find something that I love, so to something to read that I love that's not mine, but in particular, something that I love to read, but I love the thing and I don't know why. Often, maybe you all are the same. I think that, you know, naturally we're creatures of meaning. It's just who we are. And, and so for me, often, when I don't understand something and I want to, my eyes are like laser beams going out and they're almost kind of destroying or burning the thing I touch. So you, I've learned since that there's also that medieval idea of um, the eye beams that go out and, and maybe pat gently the thing, like a blind man, to get the contours of it. And that's what I mean by kind of finding a poem that you love. So, uh, but you don't know why. And I'm going to hand this paper out, and I would love for each of you to write, so it doesn't have to be a poem, the name of such a thing. So when I leave here, I can go home and, and, and read them. Um, so if we could, if you, if you don't have to do it if you don't want to. But the poem for me that I'd like to share is um, by the Irish poet Meg McGookian uh, called Gateposts. <clears throat> and if you don't mind, I don't really want to talk about it a whole lot, but I would like to sound it into the, into the room. <clears throat> Gateposts. A man will keep a horse for prestige, but a woman ripens best underground. He settles where the wind brings his whirling hat to rest, and the wind decides which door is to be used. Under the hip-roofed thatch, the bed wing is warmed by chimney breast. On either side, the keeping holes for his belongings, hers. He says it's unlucky to widen the house and leaves the gateposts holding up the ferries. He lays his lazy beds and burns the river. He builds turf castles and sprigs the corn with apple mint. She spreads heather on the floor and sifts the oatmeal ark for thin bread farls. All through the blue month, July, she tosses stones in basins to the sun and watches for the trout in the holy well. So I carried this poem in my pocket for a good while, and I would never let myself think about it. I would just read it and say thank you and, and go forward. Um, like the, the chime. Uh, and so, but then I started teaching a lot, and then I said, well, I'm going to bring this to my students and see what they, have them tell me. What's going on here? Why do I love it? And so I guess I would ask you, why might someone be enchanted by such a poem? Yeah. Because it lets you know that there's such a thing as this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes. That there's such a thing as this. Me, can you go any, even further? <clears throat> or is that enough? Uh, that's enough? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, think that's exact, I think that's exactly right. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so since doing it with my students, I actually now do understand a lot of what's happening here. And I'm amazed by this poem. Um, and I'm just going to, like for the line, the, 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 the power that happens in the couple, for his belongings, comma, 
hers. Look how much room he has in that line. He's got the whole damn thing, really. And then hers. But there's a, everything's about to change. There's a sense of imminence that just vibrates in this poem for me. And, uh, but it's the music and the sound that really moves me. Doug, did you have a? Oh, just, I'm struck by your, your talk last night about, about you don't want to have any poem that isn't about the body. And there's that wonderful, or any poetry that's not about the body. And there's that wonderful use of the description of the house, the hip roof back and the chimney breast that warm the bed. And so you have this sexuality in these inanimate objects that are part, that make a house. Yes. And, and yet there is, it's, it's feminine, it's sexual, it's warm. Yes. And it's, but it's not overt. Yeah, I think that was working on me too, and working on us. Um, well, I'd like to then to move to um, the, uh, the very famous poem of so-called nonsense, uh, um, a canonical poem by Lewis Carroll. And I wonder if we could hear uh, someone uh, read it for us. Yes, what is your name again? Uh, Andrew. Andrew, would you read it? Uh, I won't read it, but I'll recite it. Thank you. <laughs> I, this, this is the poem most people I know have, have memorized, please. Oh, Mimsy, where the Borogoves and the Momrads outgrave. Beware the Jabberwock, my son, the teeth that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the Jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time that mangsome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while and thought. And as in upper stock he stood, the Jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came lifting through the foggy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with his head he went glumping back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. Oh, fragile day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the slithy toes, they gyre and gimble in the wave. All Mimsy with the Borgoves and the Mumrads outgrave. Damn! <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Why, why does that poem still work on us after all these years? Why? What's ha I mean, why do we, why, why, look at the reaction we've had. It was just pure delight. And it's also how you read it. You read it with genius, exactly how it's to be read. So why is that happening to us? Why is so-called nonsense moving us this way? <laughs> yes, the mouthfeel is very real. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah, these made-up words. But, and yet, are we understanding something going on here? Yeah, it's incredible that the, the structure of the poem is following something old and, and common, and yet the language is so uh, lovely. It reminds me of, and especially how you read it, you know uh, Robert Frost's sense, uh, The Sound of Sense, that notion that uh, he thought that a poem really works on us in the same way that when you listen through a door, but you cannot hear the words, but you can understand what is, hap what is being said. And I've always loved that, and he actually has a, a little... A lovely little quote about it, too. Um, uh, yeah, the, be the best place to get the abstract sound of sense is from the voices behind a door that cuts off the words. It is the abstract vitality of our speech. 
and, and that sense of the tone even, you know, that, that carries you so far. And it's what I'm thinking of when, uh, I think sometimes when we write poems, that we, especially when we're learning to write poems, we can often like get in the way of ourselves. I often think that when we, when we sleep, you know, Andre Breton, I, I've included the Surrealist Manifesto in here because I love it. How many people have read that? Okay, read it. It's really beautiful. It was written between the wars. Um, and it's a manifesto, and it sounds like one at times, but it also sounds like a manifesto written by a, a, a complete maniac. And it's lovely for that reason. Um, but he talks about the marvelous and how important it is. And he talks about how a dream, you know, we don't talk about, oh, I, I made a dream last night. You know, we talk about having dreams. We talk, and, and this, as I know, is, is unacademic, and it's, uh, it's not right to talk this way about writing poems. But, but really, we know about so much about imagery and narrative if we can trust our unconscious in some ways. And, and has anyone ever done free writing where you don't think and you just write? Yeah? Well, that was the, the kind of automatism that uh, uh, Breton was talking about. Have you done it for 15 minutes or a half hour? Have you done it for like a while and you're like, oh God, my mind is not my own anymore. It's very spooky. And, uh, but it's also kind of, um, if you do, you don't have to do it forever, but it can be a, a a fresh reminder of, uh, of the unendingness of your own imagination. There's a voices, there are voices in there, and they're not going to harm you, necessarily. They're going to, you know, <laughs> we know about the harmful voices, but I think there's a way, there's a, it, but I'm not, I, also it's dangerous, I think, to, to write, to be a writer, to enter and listen to the voices in your head. And then to listen to the voices around you, too, is dangerous. And a lot of people, we don't do that either. So to learn how to, have faith in your own imagination as a writer seems crucial so that to help you get through these rough times. Yes? Can you repeat the name of the writer? And, it's in the packet. Andre Breton. He's a Frenchman. And you know, between the wars, between uh, World War I and World War II, there was this great tumult, you know, among artists. And, and all the, they all, all so many Americans went to Europe, partly because, you know, all these artists looked at what the Age of Reason brought them, was the destruction of the Western world, essentially. And they said partly, well, screw Screw reason and logic, I will only now trust dream in the irrational, and those will be my guideposts, and that is how I will understand the world. And Andre Breton talks about all this. And that's partly what I'm trying to get at, is that, um, that messy business of our own imaginations, where we begin all of our, our, our work, and to stay there, and to celebrate it. And if you write something you don't understand, don't get mad at yourself, or don't say you're an idiot, which is the things I've done, and I had to learn to kind of say, well, this is the nature of it. The nature of it is not knowing. And I'm okay with that, to a point. And, and in fact, poems come from there. All my poems come from nonsense, from a, uh, a jagged uh, rhythm, um, or, 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 or an image I can't forget from a dream. That things that won't go away, I have to deal with them. And you, you know about this. Um, so anyway, I wanted to, uh, us to write something real quick. Let's not care if we can. I, and this is something I do, is I like us to write um, a five-line or four-line nonsense love poem. And just do it real quick. Don't even think. You don't have to read it out loud. But write a four, four or five-line nonsense, nonsense love poem.
Okay. I wonder if we actually could. Does anyone want to read? Okay, great. Yeah. Um, is understand a compound word? And instead of scoffing or coughing my thought, you place your hand on your chin and sit with me. And I now believe it is a compound word because it brought the two worlds together to one understanding. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I love how you have that sometimes when we go towards nonsense, it is like Lewis Carroll's A Sense of Music, that you have this repetition and this music and this rhythm taking over. Can we hear another one? Yeah. You are there. You are not there. You build fires. You don't use enough kindling. You are sparse of speech. You are a statement. Oh, I love that. I love that you are there. You are not there. That's the history of poetry. Let's talk to the dead. Yes. Um, Thank you for reading that. I care about horses and tiny dogs now. I'm glad half of my hair is shaved because the other half would be too much. The scent of wood chips is my candle of vanilla, honey, cinnamon, and a bed of rose petals. Read a goddamn book. Or don't because horses scare me. <laughs> I love that. I love that. How, what, can I ask you something? Why is that nonsense to you? How, how is that kind of nonsense to you? Because they're just random thoughts yes. that only make sense okay. to me. <laughs> okay, yeah, that sense of the private language, the private writing, yeah. which is valuable to us. I think sometimes when, when we're students, too, that um, the first thing that can go is, is our pleasure, I think. Um, and that's natural, because when you're learning something new, it, it's natural for it to be unpleasant, you know? But it's part of the deal, I think. And, um, and yet, I think we have to be careful, because it seems like, really, for <coughs> me, all of my silences that are malignant have been from the loss of pleasure, a distance from the pleasure of writing. And whenever that happens, I'm a dead man. I have to remember. No, you go towards the pleasure. And often the nonsense here is the, a direct line into the pleasure of language. And um, I want us to, I guess, to remember that. I think I would like to read one thing myself uh, by Jean Valentine. Do you, anyone know Jean Valentine's poetry? You know, poetry is the kind of writing that maybe novels and, and other forms and essays don't necessarily, uh, I don't know if this is true, but, but poetry is almost famous for um, going, what, what now? What are you saying? But why can't that be okay? Is, I keep coming back to that. Um, but people get upset when you use language which is theirs, but you, they don't understand it. You think I'm stupid? Is that why, what's happening here? That is the danger of nonsense, you know. But, but I think if you can bring pleasure, like a lot of the guys I know, they don't like poetry, but they love song. And they don't have to know what that song is, but they, it pleases them and it speaks to them. And I think um, like Plato wanted er poems to just to instruct, and Aristotle said, no, to instruct and delight. And it's the delight. I don't take any instruction anymore except from delight if I can help it. Um, so anyway, I just want to read a poem by Jean Valentine, who always sounds like she's having a dream, or she's speaking in her sleep. And I don't know why, it, I always want to hear what she has to say. It's like when my daughter speaks in her sleep, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I, I, it's, it's keening. The morning of my mother's death, a thumbnail-sized globe of blood, an embryo, I lose it, I can't find it. A woman, 
a midwife or a companion says, do I want her to kill it? Our mother wants to take herself away from us. My kisses. She loves another country better than this. Another class of people, the class of the dead. Listen, listen, listen. Whisper this. Her silk spirit is leaving the crown of her head. <clears throat> um, I'd like to shift uh, for the moment um, and to how, how many people here have read uh, Keats's letters? Okay, that's another thing. I didn't include. I've included one, but his all of his letters are fantastic. It's a young man. He died at 25, and he wrote beautiful poems. And he was a maniac for writing and writing and writing and failing at it and writing and writing anyway and making changes and being inventive. So he was constantly thinking and talking about writing. And so he wrote his brothers primarily. Um, beautiful letters about what he's up to, what he thinks happens when we die, and all the kinds of things we think about. And uh, his, I can't uh, recommend them enough. Um, so he talks about a negative capability in this one letter. Uh, let me find it. <clears throat> he talks, this is a famous notion of, of negative capability. How many people uh, are familiar with the notion of negative capability? Yes, okay. What, um, what do you, can you tell us about your, your, your sense of it? Do you have a sense of it? or It's, it's difficult, I find. Yeah, Eliot did talk about negative capability, but it came from Keats, and he talks about like negative in terms of like a photograph's negative, and uh, or like the negative space in a room, you know, or, or the quiet that surrounds the words in a poem or in writing. That sense of negative capability. But he says this in a, a letter to his brothers, um, George, who eventually moved to Kentucky and became a lumberman and is buried in Louisville. But um, um, he says, uh, I had not a dispute, but a, disquisition, a, a disquisition with Dilk, a buddy, on various subjects. Several things dovetailed in, in my mind, and once it struck me. What quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, in which Shakespeare possessed so enormously? I mean negative capability. That is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. That, I mean... It seems like almost as writers, I always want to ask writers, what is your relationship with ambiguity? You know, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's treacherous, I think, for a lot of us, and naturally, because we're human beings. But, you know, um, my father is someone who's like, has a black belt against ambiguity. And, you know, and, and everything, and he's really good at it. And growing up with him was difficult, because everyone was, you know, walking like this and moving in ways that weren't surprising to him. Because uh, everything had to be gridded out. And I, I, I think I'm different, but really I'm not that much different. I think I'm a writer partly because of, yeah, I ambiguity freaks me out too. But, I've, I've, I, but talking about this nonsense and this other end of the spectrum where I don't know what things are happening in a poem or as I walk down the street uh, and being fine with it and in fact celebrating it <laughs> has been important. And I think that's partly what uh, negative capability, that, that as a writer, the idea of letting things, throw, throwing everything up in the air, let it go. It's not coming down yet. And then, and then uh, plucking the balls from the air to make your poem or your story. You know, that sense of letting things happen. 
you know, like Louise Gluck says, I love this phrase, um, not a phrase, it's a sentence from an essay I've included here, my favorite essay by a poet about a poet's life uh, called The Education of the Poet, where she says, the dream of art is not to assert what is already known, but to illuminate what has been hidden in the path to the hidden world is not inscribed by will. She talks in her essay about being a really willful person <clears throat> and, and, uh, and going to poetry as, I will do this, I will do that, I will write poems like this, I will have this as a career, and then of course, you know, life happens at us in some ways and, and we have to recalibrate. And, uh, but the path to the hidden world is not inscribed by will. This sense that she had to learn, which maybe we all do, is to surrender in some way and have the dream rather than make it all the time. Um, but there's another sense of negative capability that I wanted to talk about briefly, which would uh, send us into the other end of the spectrum. And that is um, the last sentence of the letter when he says, this pursued through volumes would perhaps take us no further than this, that with a great poet that or the great writer, the sense of beauty overcomes every other consideration, or rather obliterates all consideration. That's, yeah, it's almost like the nonsense poem, that sense of going forward, what's leading you? I'm not sure what's leading you, but something is. But sometimes, you know, for him, famously in his uh, Ode to the Gre on the Grecian Urn, he talks about uh, truth is beauty. And I, so sometimes I love to change the word truth out of there, and, I mean change the word beauty and put truth instead that with a poet the sense of truth overcomes every other consideration or rather obliterates all other consideration. For really, why are we, that, what I've just been talking about is uh, essential. But at the same time, what good is poetry to us or writing to us as writers uh, and as readers unless we're telling the truth of our experience? You know, all of what I've been talking, I'm talking about a way to get to it, but I'm also talking about a way of failing it. But ultimately I'm talking about, well, yeah, I, I, I must, I must say this. I must speak it. Is this common in, in your lives, that urge? You had the moment where you're almost panicking because you haven't said it or you're freaking a little bit? I know I have. And, um, and that, might, that urgency might make us you know, persist as writers, too. Um, I think sometimes of that line under which we live, really, most of our lives. We're all right here and we're behaved and we're dressed, and we're um, polite, but yeah, <laughs> dressed-ish. <laughs> but that line, you know, under which we really live, you know, is, that's why, you know, I think poetry is unkillable, and song is unkillable, and all of the writing that, that speaks of our lives, the truth of our lives, where we don't necessarily go up to someone and say, oh, my father died today, and here's, here's what that feels like. Here's what that's like. Or, I haven't had sex in six years, but today I did. You don't, you don't talk like that, right? We don't, but you know, we, we've all seen someone cry on the street. Or, I've been the person crying on the street. And, and I've, I've broken the, the compact, you know, the contract we have in some way. That really, that poetry rushes in to fill and take care of. Or in writing, takes care of. And our imaginations. Um, to tell the truth of our experience is to be inappropriate for the most part, I think. And there's, um, there's not really a, a lot of patience for that sometimes, depending on where you are and who you're with. But, um, but this urge we have to, to be candid 
the novelist Nicholson Baker. You all familiar with Nicholson Baker at all? He has a great quote. He says that life is too short for a writer not to write with the utmost candor. Famously, Walt Whitman spent his whole life talking about candor and writing with candor, writing about sexuality in the middle of the 19th century. And people loved it, and people were afraid of it. And, um, um, and so he spoke of candor and the importance of candor in our country. If we're going to have a democracy, we must have candor. We must speak our experience, no matter who you are. And it's not just one class of people that gets to speak that experience, but we all do in a democracy. And, but to me, Nicholson, <laughs> Nicholson Baker's quote is almost impossible to live up to. It's so scary to me when I hear that sometimes. For, is, life is too short for a writer not to write with the utmost candor. Nicholson is his first name, Baker. He's a really interesting novelist. Baker, B-A-K-E-R. <clears throat> he famously wrote the book, one of his books is Vox, that, uh, about uh, um, two people having phone sex that famously uh, uh, Clinton and Lewinsky read together or something. <laughs> Which is great. It's fine. The mezzanine is beautiful. He, and he has a beautiful book called You and I, where he, he's in love with John Updike's writing so much. He's such a fanboy of John Updike that he, he, he um, talks about every kind of accidental. He's been in his presence a couple times, and he just kind of goes crazy talk, analyzing the little moments that make he and John Updike the same or, <laughs> or equal in prominence. It's ridiculous and funny. But anyway, um, um, so... So sometimes when um, I am, am stuck, it, it often is because of fear. I'm not sure how, what it is for y'all, but it's a loss of pleasure or I'm afraid. I'm afraid of saying what's on the tip of my tongue. I'm afraid of saying, you know, what's buried. You know, what Louise Gluck is talking about. Um, you know, it's, not, it, it's what, what I've hidden or what someone else has hidden or somehow has been lost. And, oh, there it is. And I'm not sure what to do. Does anyone else know that feeling? Here, here's the truth, and now what? Yeah, so, so that does stop me sometimes. And, and here's what the things that uh, I want, the things I, one of the things I do to, to get over that and to help me. Because then the silence comes uh, for me. And maybe I'm talking about the silence, and it's, sometimes it's just like a week. Sometimes it's two days. Sometimes it is six months. Um, and so what I will do every day is I'll just say one true thing every day. Just one true thing. And often it is, um, uh, I saw a cardinal in the red bud, and it was beautiful. Or, or um, Kathleen is driving me crazy, and I think she's really sick of me. Kathleen's my wife. And, or some, something just... And, and it's an achievement for me to write one sentence that just tells the truth. And, <clears throat> and <I've clears> it's a pathway for me to get at things. <clears throat> what I'd like you to do right now <clears throat> is write one true thing. Just write one true thing.
Okay, why don't you write one more? Related or <laughs> what? Related. Doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do. Do we hear one? <clears throat> I have no business worrying about Luke. Ah, thank you. Luke. I have no business worrying about Luke. Can we hear another? Yeah. She told me she wants what I have, but all I ever wanted was her. Oh, my God. How about another? <laughs> See, we have poems starting or happening. Yeah, like like Auden said, yeah, a poem is poetry is just a way of happening. And that's exactly what this is. Um, so you can see, even if you strung five of those together, you see in one statement you have rhythm, you have revelation, which languages exist to conceal and to reveal, it seems. And, but it's the revelation, the lifting of the veil is why we're here, I think, partly. Um, and I think it's crucial. And why I think the poetry, you know, people who don't pay any attention to poetry say it's dying or dead, you know, it's ridiculous. They, they, they hate it. But of course it's not true. And it'll never be true. As long as, you know, we, we, do, we do these things, it seems. Um, why don't we read, uh, I'd like someone else to read this poem. Louise Gluck's poem, Purple Bathing Suit. Will someone volunteer to read this? Yes, please. I like watching you garden with your back to me in your purple bathing suit. Your back is my favorite part of you, the part furthest away from your mouth. <laughs> you might give some thought to that mouth. Also, the way you weave, breaking the grass off at ground level when you should pull it by the roots. How many times do I have to tell you how the grass spreads, your little pile notwithstanding, in a dark mass which, by smoothing over the surface, you have finally fully obscured? Watching you stare into space in the tidy rows of the vegetable garden, ostensibly working hard while actually doing the worst <laughs> job possible, I think. 
I'm sorry. I think you are a small, irritating, purple thing. And I would like to see you walk off the face of the earth because you are all that's wrong with my life, and I need you, and I claim you. <laughs> Who cussed? Because that's exactly my feeling. <laughs> Why is that? It is. Um, and, and also maybe because one of the things I wrote was, there is no single person in my life more important than language. Oh, wow. I love that. You've got to write that, too. Yeah. Everyone should write these poems, I think. But, is, this a is this a love poem, you think? Yes. Yes? yes? How so? Okay. Is it all? Could it? Is there a, anyone here who says no way? That's not a love poem. I, I think that it is a love poem, but I also think, oh God, no. <laughs> you know, I, I need you and I claim you. Have a tenderness, but somehow the, it, it's there. But also for me, it also has that the clause of uh, which I think it is a love poem because love seems to have them too of like, I need you and I claim you, is you know, a scary poem in a way. It remains scary to me and true about love in some way to me. But I, I also don't want that love. <laughs> I think that the person in the purple bathing suit could also be the speaker's child as well as a lover. It occurred to me as like an alternate reading. So, yeah. so I think it's a love poem or maybe this, this other yeah. love poem. Yeah, or I, I've thought too that maybe it's the mother, it's her mother speaking to her, perhaps, or being, I, I was spoken to, you know, we all have been, right, in some way, you're, oh my God, what are you doing here, but don't you ever leave, you stay right beside me, you, you're everything that's wrong with my life. So how do you say, so how do you say that, see, I admire that, that candor of saying, of saying that. You know, and Louise Gluck, I think, is if you haven't read much of her poetry, you won't be disappointed because she, she, she writes and she speaks like this with great power. And her father was one of the inventors of the, um, of the uh, X-Acto knife. And she, yeah, and she, she has some of that clarity, that precision, and, and they cut and hurt, but they cut really cleanly. And, and that seems to be somehow that she has a great power of uh, candor in her poems. Yeah? Well, I don't think I'd like to be the subject of one love, though. I understand that. If that's a love poem, then um, I think that the kind of what Julia said, it all, you know, I'm not sure I agree with all that, but it really depends on what the relationship is between the two mm -hmm. people, the lover and the lovey. Yeah. Um, it's changing all the time, usually, isn't it? You know, because that doesn't sound to me like a very healthy love. No. Right? Yeah, love's weird like that, isn't it? It's, you know, and famously, we, we've been writing poems since poems existed about 
the weirdness of it, you know. Yeah, but I understand. I'm with you on that. I don't want that either. But I guarantee you, I give that love to my children, too. And I'm sorry, but I, but I do. They are what's wrong with my life at times. I don't say it. <laughs> but they are. Damn it. <laughs> but, but yeah, but I, I, but I would, yeah. I'm not going to defend myself. It's indefensible, but it's true. So, um, so that's what I'm looking for in a way. I, and if you don't mind, I would like to read one more. Um, and I'd like for someone else to read it. I think these are two love poems that are interesting to me. Because uh, when we think of a love poem, we think of one, you know, we often think, well, like we wrote love poems today. Uh, but we had a nice variety here of attachment and of, of, of pushing away. It was very interesting what was happening today, which seems true. But would someone read James Tate's poem, Why I Will Not Get Out of Bed? Yes, please. What's your name? Uh, BJ. Go for it. like this for the rest of the afternoon, for the remainder of all noons. The rain is making a valley of my dim features. I am in Albania. I am on the Rhine. It is autumn. I smell the rain. I see children running through Columbine. I am honey. I am several winds. My nerves dissolve. My limbs wither. I don't love you. I don't love you. Thank you. I, I never he- hear that phrase, I don't love you. But it's a phrase we all think at times. I don't love you. But we don't say it as squarely as that, it seems so often. Um, is this fair to call this a love poem? No? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, repetition does a weird thing. Yeah, what is, yeah, good point. You mean those last two lines? Yeah, what do you mean? Um, I mean, when you say something flatly, it's, it's just uh, the thing, and you can walk away from it. When you say something twice, then it's kind of, um, you're, you're considering it, and it's kind of jumping around in your head. Oh, that's beautiful. Exactly right. I think that's really true about repetition. That, for me, I, I've always read it, and, I, and the reading's there. I don't love you. I don't love you. But it's also, I don't love you. I don't love you. I don't love You know, there's that. Yes, that's happening. <laughs> Exactly. That's right. It's really lovely, uh, the power of, of such a rhythm or, or that repetition. Um, all right. So uh, I think um, I'm going to move on to uh, uh, closing this conversation and um, maybe talk a little bit about um, uh, Ars Poetica. You know, there's y- y'all have you ever read Horace's poem uh, Ars Poetica, the great Roman poet from uh, the Augustan era? If you haven't, I've included it here, so now you can. But it is really wonderful. He he says so many he, he says so many things um, that are power you know, that are like it, I love being. I had some of my favorite professors uh, growing up were those who told me what poetry is. This is what poetry is, and so the requirement on me was then to argue and say nope, which I loved that someone would say this is what poetry is. And I could didn't, and I would be allowed, or I'd have to, to survive. Say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And that's how Horace is moving along, saying how a poem works. And he's not here just talking about poems. He's talking about uh, theatrical drama and uh, other writing. But like one of the, for example, one of the uh, things he says is, 
Death has a claim on us and all we have. And he also says another thing that um, uh, he, he talks about, you know, he's criticizing a young poet who would, um, who would put a dolphin in the woods or a dolphin in the forest or put uh, a boar or a pig in the waves of an ocean. You know, why would you do that? that? We don't see such a thing. It's a kind of a love for novelty for its sake. And, um, and so I've spent most of my adult life kind of arguing with Horace in ways that I enjoy. I like that he says these things, period. I love that a writer says things and puts themselves out there because it's brave in the end of the day. It's brave to say a thing out loud to others and then face what comes. Um, uh, and so I, I've argued with him for a long time and I thought as my final writing uh, prompt, we won't do it today, but um, something for, for you to do later is to find a moment in Horace's um, uh, Ars Poetica where you can um, argue with him or agree with him and, and take it as your first line or, or what, however you want to do it. But take a moment. And, and there's lots of these moments where you can do that. And so I guess I wanted to read to kind of close this sense of the other end of the spectrum where in Ars Poetica, I wouldn't necessarily count Horace's Ars Poetica as a lyric poem, but uh, it is musical, in fact. It's just so, the language is so plain and clear that I wanted to read um, an Ars Poetica from the uh, modern day by one of my favorite writers named David Lee, who also is using a kind of common language. And it's a, he's a pig farmer. And the whole book, uh, Porcine Canticles, which this poem comes from, um, is, a, is, a is a whole book is about raising pigs. Anyway. Here's, a, here's a, a little Ars Poetica called Loading a Boar. We were loading a boar, a goddamn mean big son of a bitch, and he jumped out of the pickup four times and tore out my stock racks and rooted me in the stomach, and I fell down, and he bit John on the knee, and he thought it was broken, and so did I, and the boar stood over in the far corner of the pen and watched us, and John and I just sat there, tired, and Jan laughed and brought us a beer, and I said, John, it ain't worth it. Nothing's going right. And I'm feeling half dead and haven't wrote a poem in ages. And I'm ready to quit it all. And John said, shit, young feller, you ain't got started yet. And the reason's because you're trying to do it outside yourself. and ain't looking in. And if you want to, by God, write poems, you've got to write poems about what you know and not about the rest. And you can write about pigs and that boar and Jan and you and me and the rest. And there ain't no way you're going to quit. And we drank beer and smoked all three of us, and finally loaded that mean bastard and drove home and unloaded him and he bit me again and I went in the house and got out my paper and pencils and started writing and, find, and found out John he was right. <laughs> is that amazing? <clears throat> this is one of the best books of poems I've ever read. It's called The Porcine Canticles by, uh, by um, David Lee. So to, to finish then uh, with our conversation, I do want to um, read, uh, which I never do if I teach. I never read a poem of my own. But since I'm a visitor, uh, you can say uh, what bed, what a classless fellow, and I'll leave. And I'll, but I want to read it because it is an argument with Horace. This poem came uh, from such a thing. Um, and there are several in this book that argue with his Ars Poetica. But I don't mention it. I don't say it, but it's there. Um, so to finish, this is simply... A, a, song, a, a poem called Song for Sunday Morning. 
The dolphin in the woods leaps from tree to tree, and is only wind is only the yellow of poplar leaves and the blue of September where the little windows are. Every day our fathers live, they breathe the air that was something else in another time. If the atom is to be believed, we all shift and change. What was the river becomes the cloud. What we wanted to say, we never could. It was obvious. It was hidden like the dolphin in the woods. So to remind us, look, in, look to the obvious and look to the hidden. When you're stuck or if you just wake up happy and you know what you're doing, the obvious and the hidden uh, uh, will help you. Thank you very much. <laughs>